And as you're being seated, please open the Bible to Genesis chapter 45. Genesis 45 is where we will be, so if you'd like to be following along with us, then chapter 45 of Genesis is where you should turn. And we'll read the chapter and study together what the Lord has for us. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord over all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come, it pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this. Load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. The sons of Israel did so and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows, 10 donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed he said to them, do not quarrel on the way. (laughs) So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Father, thank you that you are so good to us and you've given us your word. Lord, would you teach us 
Would your spirit move in our hearts and minds, God, to grow us, to, to, to be conformed into the image of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ in his name. Amen. Well, I've asked this question before in mid-high student ministries on Wednesday night, and so some of the students in here may have a leg up, but I want to ask a question by show of hands here this morning. How many of you are theologians? (laughs) A couple here and there. There is an actual career title, as we're familiar with, of theologian, professionals who make their, their living studying the Bible and, and, and teaching other people. And that's a good definition of theologian, but that's not what I'm talking about here right now. The word theologian simply means one who studies God, one who learns about God. Many people think of a theologian as this stodgy professor guy who spends all of his time studying little unimportant details and then arguing with other people about those unimportant details and other professor theologians with their bow ties on and, and people think of harshness and anger and just, you know, boring. That's what people think, right? But that's not what I mean by theologian. Um, by the way, many of those little insignificant details become, and you know, they end up becoming more important as you study them. But if a person's going to do all of that work, there should be a point, right? There should be a purpose for studying God and his word. So the point of a theologian is to study God and his word and understand all that we can about God and about ourselves and life. And understanding all of that, then the point is to help us understand why does it matter? What should we do with that? Why it's important. So study the Bible, study God, study Jesus and the Holy Spirit, and study the church, study yourself and mankind. This is what theologians do. Study the world and sin and angels and Satan and the end times, and then live out what you've learned. In other words, a theologian is simply one who learns all that he or she can about God and then lives that out, lives out that truth in life. So, I ask again, how many people in here are theologians? All of the, there we go, praise God, all of the hands go up. Every one of us is a theologian, in a sense, because based on what we know about God, based on what we believe about God, we make decisions, we act, we think, we feel, we speak in line with those beliefs. Whether we realize it or not, whether we can articulate it or not, we have a theology inside, and we live it out, and it drives out the pattern of our life. Now, that's, big in, that's true in big issues and small issues. So uh, just an example, I, I wanted to bring up just a few of the big issues that theology is important in, issues such as gender, abortion, and climate change. You're saying, now, hold on a minute, those are political issues. They don't bring politics into the church. But actually, those are theological issues, because what you believe about God influences your position on those issues. You may, through unrighteousness, suppress the truth of God's existence. You can say there's no such thing as God, knowing deep inside there is. You may say, okay, there's no God because of that. He did not create human beings in his image. He certainly didn't create them male or female. And because there's no solid foundation for male or female in the Word of God, you can convince yourself and others who believe like you that gender is an outdated social construct. Following the same reasoning, you've convinced yourself there is no God. People are not made in His image. So if certain human beings don't meet certain requirements that you set up that, that qualify them as significant or worthy of life, then that human being's continued existence should be up for debate. 
We've talked about it before. But many scientists, even many who are pro-abortion, understand and freely admit that babies are human beings. They're babies, not just extra tissue. But it doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. Because a human being isn't any more special than any other kind of animal. They're not made in God's image to them. There's no inherent dignity or worth because they can't contribute. They're just a big drain on the person who doesn't want them. Or the elderly, for that matter, who can't contribute any longer, who are just a drain on the overall good. Their continuation of life should be up for debate for people who have not grounded the idea of human dignity and worth in who God is and that we bear His image. Theology matters. You say, well, what about climate change? Is mankind destroying the earth? Can mankind destroy the earth so that life as we know it cannot continue? What's mankind's responsibility for all of this? And again, uh, if you've made up your mind that mankind is really more of a plague on this earth and not made in God's image, not commanded to be fruitful and multiply, well, then if we have too many of those people, we need to figure out a way to get rid of those people that are on this planet. Prevent them from being bored, hurry along their passing, whatever we need to do. But if we believe that God blessed humanity with his image. He gave us the command to be fruitful and to multiply. And we believe his promise in Genesis 8 that promises us while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. We believe God, we believe his word will not take drastic measures of trying to control human population. Now that's not to say the climate isn't changing it, it, it seems that there are enough data to show that there are cycles of warmth and cool, warming and cooling that happen. The missing data involve whether mankind has anything to do with that. And that's a, that's a bigger topic. That's a separate topic. But our theology matters and it influences how we think about these big issues. Theology filters how you view the world. How I look outside, the glasses that I'm wearing as I look out and, and see what happens and what doesn't happen. It's, it's how I make sense out of the world. It's how I decide whether to do this or do that, go this way or go that way, say this or say nothing. Your theology tells you a lot about your life. Your theology told you where to be this morning. Your theology told you where to be last night and how long to be there so that you could go to sleep so you could wake up to be here this morning. Your theology dictates to you where you eat lunch on Wednesday, who you're with, what you're doing. So it's not just all the big issues, it's all the little issues of life as well. But it's really those little issues day by day by day that we, that we decide on, that we think about, that we feel, that we speak about. Those little issues actually give us a better, more complete picture of what kind of theology you and I really have. It shows what kind of theologians we are. Now, Joseph's brothers have lived out their theology for a little more than 20 years. They thought they could sin against their brother, sell him into slavery, lie to their father, and get away with it. Their theology taught them they could sin against God, their father, their brother, and get away with it. Either, they thought, God didn't see or he didn't care. Either God couldn't do anything about it or he wouldn't do anything about it. That's what their theology, as they, as they lived out 20 years of their life, that's what their theology revealed about what they really believed about God. Now, toward the end, we could see God's work in their hearts, and they started to feel the, the conviction, the guilt of their sin. And so they had to change their theology to the truth. God did see, God did care. They needed to respond by faith and repentance. 
And we've walked through that the last several weeks. But the question is, what about Joseph? What has Joseph learned about God, believed about God? What has, and how has that impacted his life? We're going to see that in part one of this chapter, verses 1 through 15. Number one in your notes, how Joseph reveals his identity to his brothers. That's what happens here in the first part. He reveals. After the brothers have passed the tests that reveal that they've actually truly changed, they are, they are different now through faith and repentance, Joseph can't control himself anymore. He just orders everybody get out. This is a private meeting, members, you know, family members only, right? And as he just loses it, he's weeping out loud. It's loud enough for the people outside the doors to hear everything that happens. And what happens is he just blurts it out. I'm Joseph. <laughs> is my father still alive? Now, the word that's used in verse 3 for the brothers is dismayed. Really, it's the word terrified, <laughs> If you can imagine, they are terrified of all of the loops that they've had to jump through, of all of the strange things that have happened in the course of the last couple of years here, the strange behavior of this leader, this is just too much. He just claimed to be our dead brother. What's happening right now, right? They don't even answer Joseph's question. You know, we've already told him our father is alive. What's this my father stuff? So Joseph says, come close, and they do. Joseph can tell they're having a little bit of trouble believing him. So he volunteers some information that only the 11 of them would know. I am your brother Joseph, his name that they haven't revealed, whom you sold into Egypt. The only people that would have known that outside these 11 brothers is brother number 12. And here he is before them. But notice what he says next because here's where his theology comes out. And, and you usually don't have to wait very long when you meet someone, when you talk to someone, when you're around a person for their theology to come out, either in their words or their actions or both. Joseph doesn't just say words about God, but words about God that then dictate what we should do next, how we should live life. In verses 5 through 8 in this speech that he gives to his brothers, he says three different times, God sent me here. Verse 5. God sent me before you to preserve life. Verse 7, God sent me before you to preserve for you. Verse 8, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Three times to emphasize this truth and his belief in this truth, God sent me here. God's the one in charge. He's the sovereign one. In that sovereignty, he knew what he was doing in wisdom to bring about his good plan of blessing so that we would survive. It's his wisdom. It's his sovereignty. It's his goodness. And so now, because of that truth, this is what Joseph says. Here's what's true for us here and now. First, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Notice at the end of that, first thing that we want to talk about, we need to notice here is that God's sovereignty did not absolve them from their guilt. He acknowledges what they did. You sold me into slavery. <laughs> Let's not... Forget that. <laughs> Let's not just beat around the bush. You know, that was, it was the direct action of you guys that sent me into slavery in prison and, and enslaved in Egypt and forgotten for so many years. Just because God used it didn't make it okay what they did, right? But notice next that he says they should not be distressed or angry with themselves. Now, this is where it gets really helpful for us. The word distressed in a literal sense, if you were talking about somebody who's distressing something, it refers to carving out of wood. You're taking some, some, a, a piece of wood and you're just chipping away at it, you're just 
systematically, laboriously working at it, chipping it away repeatedly. But it's not literal here, it's, it's figurative and it's reflexive, which, which means it's something that they're doing to themselves. He says, don't be beating yourselves up on the inside, whipping, uh, whittling away at yourself, carving yourself up. Don't be constantly, repeatedly chipping away at yourselves inside. And don't be angry with yourselves. The picture there is a burning fire inside of you with an intense rage that just burns in anger and continues. Joseph counsels his brothers here on how to think rightly about what's happened. Don't be distressed or angry with yourselves because of your sin. Now, it doesn't say this explicitly in this narrative because it is just narrative. It's, it's not the, the clear teaching that we have in New Testament. It's lived out the teaching of the New Testament here in the Old Testament. But I believe, based on the explicit teaching of the Scriptures in other places, that the reason he can say that is because they've repented. They've turned away from their sin. They, they recognized their sin. They confessed it. They turned away from it. They have dealt properly with sin. So don't be beating yourself up. For the guilt of sin. Don't be angry with yourself for sinning. Now, before they did that, there were a series of tests that we've gone through for the last few weeks. And those were meant to torture them on the inside for their guilt of sin. They hadn't dealt with it. But now that they have repented, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? Romans 8.1. When you have repented of sin, brother and sister, through faith in Jesus Christ, the sin is gone and done, it's dealt with. It's over, so don't live in guilt over sin any longer. There was an appropriate sadness and sorrow and pain from the guilt of sin before repentance, but now there's no place for it because you've been forgiven. That's the proper counsel to give a person who has been forgiven of their sin. God takes our sin away from us in Jesus. Psalm 103.10 says, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. And as far as the east is from the west, as far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. They're taken away from us. So many Christians get stuck in their faith because of sins in the past that have been forgiven and paid for by Jesus. Living in guilt, living in, in this constant beating themselves up and, and, and distressing themselves and, and being angry with themselves. Joseph counsels his brothers, and by extension, us, don't do that. Why not? Well, for one, the sins are forgiven. But two, God used it for good. And again, that doesn't make it okay. Our sin doesn't make it okay just because God is able to use it. But we can, when we've been forgiven, sit back and watch how God uses even a bad things that we've done, our sins, our sinfulness, he turns around and uses that for good. We're responsible for sin, but when they're forgiven, you can rejoice that God uses those even for his glory and your good. Now, this is freeing for us. It's freedom that we have, and it's truth because it's based on good theology. It's bad theology, brother and sister, to say to yourself or to other people that because you've sinned, Christian, you need to pay for that sin by being guilty for the rest of your life. Or you need to feel guilty for the next 20 minutes, two days month, week, a light, for the rest of your life, you've got to feel guilty. Never be a blessing to anybody else and never be blessed by anybody else because you messed up. That's 
bad theology, but we tell ourselves that. Now, I'm not talking about consequences for sin. Sometimes there are lasting consequences. Even after we've repented for sin, we can still experience consequences on this earth. But distress and anger over forgiven sin is a bad theology for Christians. Now, please note that for a non-Christian, someone who does not believe in Jesus Christ, it's very good theology to be worried about sin, to be guilt-ridden over sin, and and for, for that person to be looking for how to get rid of that sin, how to be rid of the guilt of sin. That's good theology because when you are still in your sin, you're still guilty of sin. Jesus says in John 8, you will die in your sins and you will pay for your sins forever. So it's good theology to see sin and to be guilty of it so that you can turn to the Lord God who removes that sin from you when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, turning away from sin. But for Christians, our theology from God's word teaches us that we're forgiven in Jesus. Now, let me touch on another piece of bad theology floating around in churches that that we're influenced by. I I even had a conversation this week about about this piece of theology that gets implanted in our minds. The right way to be free of the guilt of sin is in Jesus because of the truth that we're forgiven. He's removed that from us. So, there is no such thing as needing to forgive yourself. To get this freedom of guilt from sin, you cannot forgive yourself. The counsel here is not forgive yourselves. The Bible never tells us to forgive ourselves because we can't forgive ourselves of sin. If we could forgive ourselves, why did Jesus need to come? (laughs) Why did we need God to work through us mightily to give us the faith and repentance so that we could believe and turn away from sin? We place ourselves much too high when we presume to be able to forgive ourselves, and it never works, so the guilt remains... It's not freeing. And I think the reason for that teaching is to help us get freedom from the guilt of sin. But forgiving yourself doesn't remove the sin or the guilt because it's not the truth. It's not good theology from God's Word. The truth, God's Word tells us, theology applied reveals that as we as believers have been forgiven, we are already free from the guilt of sin in Jesus Christ. So think rightly with good theology about sin about how to handle it, think rightly in line with God's word rather than bad theology from the world. So Joseph says, that's what's true for us right now. You did this, but don't be distressed. Don't be angry with yourselves. The sin has been dealt with, it's been removed, and God's used it for good. Second, he says, this has happened to preserve life. Look at the good that God did out of this. Joseph can see that there is so much good from this. He says as much twice, verses 5 and verse 7. It was to preserve life, a remnant, to keep alive for you many survivors. You did this, yet God did this. How does that work out? Again, we've constantly seen this throughout Genesis. We have no ability in our minds to comprehend how God works all of this out for our good, for his glory, that we do this, but God's actually doing it. We don't understand, but we know that, we we believe that because that's what his word tells us. That's what he reveals to us. Based on that, we see the good that's come out of our bad. The ultimate example of this, somebody doing something bad that turns out for good is explained in Acts chapter 2. 
Peter was preaching. He said, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It was God's plan all along that he be delivered up. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The ultimate good of our salvation came by the ultimate evil of killing the Messiah, but it was necessary. And so, yes, those men killed Jesus, and yet God did all of that to save us. The ultimate example, the greatest good came about because of that great evil. God uses even bad for good. Now, be careful here that we don't misapply this teaching specifically. Because Joseph said, you know, God used your bad to preserve life through this famine, right? You're all going to survive and not fall into poverty. God brings good out of evil. That's always true. But God preserved life through a famine in this instance. And this is some more hard truth that sometimes we need to hear and be reminded of. There are times when God preserves life through famine. There are times when God preserves life through war or sickness, catastrophe, accidents, terrible things that happen, but there are also times that God does not preserve life through those things. He's still sovereign, wise, and good. Our study of God and His Word that applies to our life does not tell us that when we do the right things, God will always preserve our life. And our study of the scriptures and our experience in life tells us, does not tell us that all of the evil people out there, all of those unsafe people, bad things all happen to them. Death only happens to the wicked. No. In fact, God's plan for each person in this room is for us to die physically. Now, there were two men that never experienced death, Enoch and Elijah. And those who are alive at the rapture will not experience death. And we hope that we're in that number. (laughs) We really hope Jesus returns so that we can be in that number. But unless your name is Enoch or Elijah, or you're alive at the rapture, God's plan is for you to die. And we don't know when or how, but God does. Now, all of this together is really an entirely different way. It can be an uncomfortable way at the beginning for us to look at life. It's, it's so different from our way of thinking, generally. You know, we're taught, up, we're, we're taught, we're brought up to think, life is mine. I've got to do with it what I want to do, what I need to do with it. I've got to, I've got to do things. I've got to make things happen. I, you know, I need to do the best I can with the direction I think I should be going, and, and everything happens to me outside of my control. I've got to figure out how to overcome it so I can keep going the direction I want to go. The, only the strong survive. No excuses. Let's just get it done. <laughs> and don't talk about death. <laughs> but all that's bad theology lived out in our thinking. Biblically, in good theology, God made you in his image with the specific purpose of living a life of worship to him for his praise and his glory. That's your purpose. That's my purpose. So whatever God brings about is meant to fulfill that purpose. What does that look like? Since we have been born in sin after the fall, 
God's explicit purpose, his declared will, as we've talked about before, is your salvation by his grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We call that justification. 2 Peter 3.9 says, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That's God's will for your life. For you to live a life of worship to him, you've got to be justified, declared righteous. And the only way to do that is through Jesus Christ. The most important thing you can do in this life is repent through faith in Jesus Christ. Then, his next explicit purpose, declared will for your life, is for you to be sanctified, made increasingly into his perfect, loving, holy image of Jesus every day that you're alive, more and more. We call that sanctification. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 it's, it doesn't come much clearer than this. This is God's will for you, your sanctification. The most important thing you can do in this life when you are saved, when you have been justified, is to engage in that process that God is working out in you toward holiness and love called sanctification. Finally, his explicit purpose and declared will for you is to die. Again, in the majority of cases. <laughs> And to come to be with him in his glory forever. 1 Corinthians 15.50 says, Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. We've got to get rid of this. <laughs> Philippians 1.6 says, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That is his revealed will. That's what he wants for your life. For you to be justified, for you to be in the process of being sanctified so that one day we will be glorified with him forever. That is what God is doing with the life that he made that we call our lives. That's what God's working on. That's why he sustains your life until he doesn't. That's why he gives you breath to breathe and food to eat and, and water or other things, so many other things to drink, right? We, we have so many things. We're blessed with so many things, but we're given those things so that we will use them as a life of worship for our God, to our God. Those aspects of salvation, justification, sanctification, and glorification restores the original purpose God made us for, to worship him. There's nothing more important than that. And then when he decides that our time is done here on the earth, no matter what age we are or what we think we have left to do, it will end here, but it will continue afterward. And everything in between the beginning and the end of life comes into your life as part of God working out that will, his plan, the declared will of God. Now, we also talked uh, several weeks ago about his decreed will, which is what we don't know. He has not revealed it to us, what your job will be, how many kids you'll have, if you'll have any kids. You know, the, the things in life that he doesn't reveal to us, specifically what we're supposed to be doing, but we're not supposed to be trying to figure that out, like it's some kind of divine puzzle, like he gets joy out of us, like <laughs> trying to figure it out. He doesn't declare it or reveal it. It's his to know, but it happens every time, all the time. So regarding the job I should take, which car I should buy, you know, those kinds of decisions, we had a grid that we worked through a few weeks ago, several weeks ago, just to help us make sure that we're aligning with what we do know His will is, our justification, sanctification, and glorification. So don't fall into the wrong theology of thinking the old way about life. It's my life to live for my purposes. Your life is primarily given to you so that you will fulfill God's purpose 
for your life. And that declared purpose isn't mysterious. It's for you to believe in Jesus Christ, to turn away from your sin, to be made more into his image every day, and to wait anxiously until he brings you home. It's when you try to change your ultimate purpose to something else, something that you want, that life gets very confusing. Why is this happening? Why is this stuff happening? Why is this getting in my way? When that illness comes that prevents you from your goals, it's frustrating. You know, and we, we, maybe we find ways around it. And that's good. Find ways around it. Find ways to beat the illness or the, the obstacle that comes, the, the problems that come. Find a way. That's good because we don't know exactly how God's working through all of that. But when you can't beat it, when those things come that are just impossible to get around, it's because it's God's plan to bring about his purpose. It's intentional to bring about his perfect plans. His purpose is to bring you home, not keep you here. (laughs) So when Joseph says here that God sent me, he says it three times, he sent me to preserve life. It's not a blanket promise that that's what's always going to happen, that my life is going to be preserved. Here, our life in Jesus is always preserved. We will never be lost from Jesus. But this time it was God's will because these people were the beginning of the people of Israel the nation of Israel, who would one day bring about the Messiah himself, Jesus. They would give birth to him down the line through many generations. Jesus, the one who would bring to us our justification, our sanctification, and one day our glorification. So God preserved life in this instance. Like we said, because God sent me here and worked good through this because you've been forgiven, don't beat yourselves up over sin. Don't be angry with yourselves. This is what we need to do. We've got to be moving forward here. We're seeing how important theology is. It just completely changes your perspective on the life and what happens in every way. Rather than looking through the glasses of what I think I should be doing and the way I think things should be going, our study of God teaches us that nothing happens outside of God's plan to bring about His purpose. So we accept and we submit to Him in His sovereignty, His wisdom, and His goodness. Okay, that's what we should do. (laughs) (laughs) that's what we're supposed to do. Now, one more caution on this before we move on. Because some people hear this and they think, well, that means that I'm never supposed to struggle with anything. I'm just supposed to let everything, uh, the expression is the water off the duck's back, right? Nothing bothers me that I'm just supposed to, well, you know, if I really believe, then, then I'm just supposed to move on with life. I'm just supposed to handle everything that comes along. When really the whole point of life is to drive you to God in faith because you can't handle it, (laughs) because there's too much for us. Everything that happens is beyond our control and our ability to deal with it. That's the point. (laughs) That's the desired effect. It's either that we try to deal with it ourselves, which we were never meant to do. We were not equipped to be able to handle everything ourselves at least in ways that glorify God. You know, we can see people that, well, nothing ever bothers them. They just walk along. (laughs) That's not necessarily glorifying to God when nothing bothers you. You just move on with life. Ah, I don't struggle with anything. The struggle is meant to be difficult so that we will cling to our God for whom nothing is difficult. Nothing is impossible. So because 
of the truth about God, his sovereignty, his wisdom, his goodness, because of all these truths, don't beat yourselves up because of sins that are forgiven. God meant it all for good. Here's what you need to do in verses 8 through 11. Here's what else you should do. Go tell Jacob that Joseph is in charge of Egypt. Don't tarry. Don't wait around. Hurry up. Get down there. Bring along the whole family. Tell him Joseph will provide for the entire family so nobody suffers in the famine that has five more years. And he says, tell him that God made him a, pharaoh, a father to Pharaoh, lord of all his house and ruler over the land. Now, we get the last two, but the first one, father to Pharaoh, what does this mean? Well, it refers to his exercising paternal influence over Pharaoh. Why does he need that? Well, it's well attested in history that the youngest ruler in Egypt became ruler when he was six years old. The well-known King Tut, Tutankhamun, when he, was, uh, when he became Pharaoh, was nine years old. Amenhotep III was only 12 years old when he became Pharaoh. So this Pharaoh could be young. It could just be the fact that Joseph, who's only 39 at this point, has all of this wisdom from God about what's coming, what we should do, how we need to be prepared, how they are prepared in the middle of this famine. God gave this man wisdom, so he should be advising Pharaoh what to be doing. It's no wonder he's called that. But the reason that he tells his brothers to tell Jacob this, tell dad all of this stuff, is so that Jacob will know that he has the actual power to fulfill all of these promises. Get down here and you'll be provided for Verse 12, they hear him in their own language. Remember before they had a, he had an interpreter? He sends everybody out and he says, it's my mouth speaking to you. Not only is it in their language, they recognize him. Oh, it is Joseph. This is amazing. And so he falls on Benjamin's neck and he cries and he kisses each brother and weeps upon them. But finally, notice verse 15. After that, his brothers talked with him. After all that's just happened, now these brothers are reconciled. They're brought back together. Such a beautiful picture of reconciliation through forgiveness. But what was that based on? What was it that made forgiveness even possible for Joseph because of what these guys did? What was that based on? I mean, rather than bitterness and revenge, how could Joseph possibly forgive them? It was all because of his good theology. You've repented, I've forgiven. Because I've forgiven, we are reconciled. Now, we've all seen relationships fall apart because somebody said something mean to the other person or about the other person. Or they didn't do something nice. Or, or you were too close. Or you were not close enough. You, you did this. You didn't do that. You said this. You didn't say that. Whatever it was, we've seen relationships end because of things that people do or didn't do or don't do. And there's no forgiveness or reconciliation. We've been part of that ourselves. But imagine having a group of your closest friends or family conspire to kill you. <laughs> they decide to sell you into slavery because they can make a few bucks instead. You spend the next 12 years as a slave, wrongly accused, imprisoned, forgotten, and then as soon as you're released, the entire nation depends on you acting the way God tells you to act so that they can all survive. And then those group of people come along. What do you do? What, if, what does Joseph do? He forgives and reconciles after they repent. How can he do that? I mean, we can't forgive someone when they cut us off in traffic. You know, I mean, we're ready to, like, try to pit maneuver them, right? I mean... 
Somebody says something mean against us. You know, why doesn't Joseph hold a grudge when we hold grudges way more easily, way more often? Joseph had the right theology. The reason that we don't or feel like we can't forgive is because our theology needs to get fixed. It needs to be adjusted. There, there needs to be repentance and then reconciliation because God has forgiven us infinitely more sin than we'll ever have to forgive somebody else. When we sin against the almighty, powerful, perfect God, we sin against the holy God of the universe. When somebody sins against me, they've just sinned against another sinner. Our theology's got to be fixed. If we have been forgiven by God, Jesus tells us we must forgive others. How can you deal with problems that come up randomly, the, the just random things that just happen that are so troublesome? How can you deal with people who do horribly wrong things to you? How do you not become bitter or depressed or angry because of hard times? How can you forgive? By resting in the sovereignty, the wisdom, and the goodness of the faithful, living, almighty God. He uses it all. When you trust this God, when you trust that he's working through those things, you will not and you cannot become vengeful or bitter or angry or unforgiving or unloving. So how important is it what we believe about God? It's how we live breath by breath. It's how we make all the decisions in our life. That's the first part of the chapter. (laughs) The second part. Joseph sends his brothers to bring Israel to Egypt. Now, we won't spend a lot of time on this because it's mostly this dialogue of what happens here. Pharaoh says, bring all your family down here and they, and they will have the best of the land, the fat of the land of Egypt. Not only it's a suggestion, it's a command. Verse 19 says, you're commanded. Get the wagons, get the little ones, the ones who won't be able to travel very well. Get, get those wagons down there, bring them all up here. Forget all your stuff. That's the word for verse 20. All of your goods. Leave all your stuff. You'll have the best of what you need. Uh, Verse 21, Joseph gives them everything they need. Wagons, check. Change of clothing, check. Wait, why a change of clothing? Remember in the last chapter, they tore their clothes because they were under the the judgment. (laughs) They were guilty of sin. Now they've been blessed by restoration, reconciliation. Benjamin again gets 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothing because of his special status as Joseph's very own brother. Dad gets the most. We saw the the 20 donkeys full of the good things of Egypt. What a blessing. In the middle of a famine, they get 20 donkeyfuls. Now, we don't even really know what that means (laughs) because we don't work around donkeys very much, but it was a lot of food. And they get to come down in this famine with plenty of food. Verse 24, do not quarrel on the way. (laughs) <laughs> yep, y'all did it. Don't, and, you know, don't be trying to, well, I really didn't want to go along with it, but I didn't say anything at the time. No, <laughs> you're, you're not out of it. Everybody was 100% guilty of the sin, but it's been dealt with. It's gone. No fighting. Again, there is none of that that's even allowed. These are all changed men. Arguing is useless. When they get home, they tell Jacob, it says his heart became numb. He doesn't probably even know what to believe from these guys at this point, but he sees the 11 of them back. He hears that Joseph, his 12th one, is still alive. He can go down and see him. He sees all the wagons with all of that. He's convinced his heart or spirit is revived. Now, he's not really sure about going down to Egypt. That sets us up for the next chapter. 
But as for what to learn from this week, our application, the application here is simply know the Lord. Know the Lord. As you came in with your notes, you were probably given this giant bookmark. Now this looks amazing, thanks to Kim's work, she made it look really nice like this. I, I gave like a horrible looking thing, but she made it look nice. What the point of this is, I wanted to tell you about this, because this came about as a result of personal study through the scriptures. As, as you read through the scriptures, uh, I, I just wrote down verses. Wow, that talks about God's eternality, how God's eternal. He's, he's from everlasting to everlasting. He's beginning to end. He's the alpha, the omega. All of the things, all of the verses that talk about how God is forever. These verses in Genesis, these verses in Exodus, talk about how God is good, how good he is in every way, in everything he says and does, how gracious God is, how holy God is. And what this is meant to do is just help give you a jump start, just a head start <laughs> on lo- knowing the Lord. Get to know this God. This is not an exhaustive list of verses. It's not an exhaustive list of his attributes. But when you get to know this God, you can trust this God. You can believe in this God. You can love this God through Jesus Christ, and then your life is different. This is how, part of how we are being made more into the image of Jesus, how we're being sanctified. Is that the timer? Is my time up? John 17, 3, we read it a couple of weeks ago. This is salvation, that they may know you and Jesus Christ. God, that's what Jesus prayed. Philippians uh, 3.10. Paul says, I just I want to know him. 2 Peter 3, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This is the hope that we have. I'll close with this. Hebrews 8 quotes Jeremiah 31. Hebrews 8, 10 through 12 says, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord. Nobody's going to teach that. Nobody's going to say that or do that anymore. Why? For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. What a day that will be. Father God, thank you for that hope. Lord, that we can know you. Lord, that we can grow in our knowledge of you right now. God, I pray that we would take that that privilege and that responsibility seriously, Lord. That every day we would be growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God, that that would change us and that would grow us. Lord, not that we'd just be better people. God, not that people can just look at us and pat us on the back and say, well, you're a good person. But God, that we would do things and say things that would never come from us, that can only come from your work in us. God, because we know you and because you know us. Father, what a blessing, what a privilege that is. God, we look forward to the day when we don't even have anything else we can learn because we know you and you know us, Father. There will be no more teaching about you and from others. But God, Ephesians 2 tells us that in the ages to come, you will show us, you'll continually show us day after day, age after age, millennia after millennia, the riches of the goodness of your kindness toward us in Jesus Christ.
Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy. Lord, help us to bring that message, that good news to people around us. Help us to live it, to speak it, Father, to sing it. God, as we sing it now, Father, I pray that you would be glorified, that we would be edified. Lord, that the people around us would be convicted and that they would come to know Jesus also. In his name we pray, amen.